So today we will be finishing John chapter 6, working our way from verse 60 through to verse 71. John chapter 6, verse 60 to 71. Let me read this out. This is God's word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, please make the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're finally getting to the end of chapter 6, where we see the end result of Jesus drawing this line of separation between true and false followers. Often with those who are following someone, it's very easy to follow someone if it seems like the reward is greater than the cost. Whereas, of course, if it gets to the point where it seems like the cost is greater than reward, then most people are quite fickle and they will abandon whatever it is they are following because no one likes cost. Now, we know that for those who follow Jesus, the reward is incomparable to the cost. But sometimes for some people, those who have not been born of the Spirit, those who cannot see the reward, there eventually comes a time where the cost just seems too much and people walk away. And this is what we see happening here. We see in this passage, many who appeared to be disciples. Notice here in verse 60, they are called disciples. So we're no longer talking about the Jews who are antagonistic to Jesus. We're no longer talking about a large crowd. We're talking about people who gave the appearance of being followers. These are disciples. And there are many who turn away. And although there are many who turn away and leave, we still have this faithful remnant. This little passage here is a wonderful picture of the larger um, picture that we have of followers of Jesus, where there is often just a faithful remnant amidst a world of false followers, those who will come to Jesus in the end, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So here we have these false followers, but then we have the true followers, and the beautiful declaration representative of the true followers is what Peter gives here, where he says from verse 68, when Jesus asked him, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is, in a sense, representative of those who are truly following Jesus. There is nowhere else 
they will go. So today we will look at both of these responses. We'll look at the, the response of the false followers and then the response of the true followers. And then sandwiched in between will be these three pillars of the faith of those who are truly following the Lord. So the first section we will look at is the response of the false followers. This is from verses 60 to 62. So again, amongst the crowd, all through chapter six, we have seen this large crowd. They began when they saw Jesus feeding. I mean, they were likely part of those who were fed. So we're talking about um, a large portion of the 15,000 or so that were part of this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. There was a massive crowd that was following Jesus. But now, as we get to the end of chapter 6, John is talking about a people that is more refined than that large crowd. He is talking about a people who give the appearance of being disciples. They're not simply passers-by. They're not simply a crowd. They're actually people who give the appearance of disciples. But we know Though it is more refined than the crowd, this is more uh, broad than the 12 disciples. So you have the inner circle, even within the inner circle, you have people like Peter, James and John who form part of an inner circle of the 12 that Jesus seems to do a lot more with. Then you have the 12 and now we have this outer circle of people who are more refined than simply a crowd, but they are broader than the 12 So what is clear here is that these people give the appearance of being followers of this teacher. They have pledged their allegiance to him in some sense. This is what is happening here. And these followers show their true colors colors by eventually walking away. Now, before we even get into their response, this should hit us in the face and strike us with fear when we remember that simply looking like a disciple doesn't make you a disciple. Simply giving the appearance of doing some Christian things doesn't make you a Christian. So church attendance doesn't make you a true disciple. Reading a Bible doesn't make you a true disciple. These are wonderful things, but they don't make you a true disciple. You can do all of these things with ulterior motives. This is the scary thing. You can do all of these things with ulterior motives. You can be part of a church because you just love the social aspect of it. Human nature is to crave company. A lot of people can be part of a church because they are usually a welcoming, hopefully they should be a welcoming community. A lot of people can regularly attend a church simply because they like the community aspect. Or a lot of people could be involved in various forms of ministry because they like the sense of importance and recognition that it gives them to be doing something that other people are gonna look at and say, wow, well done. Human nature, again, is to crave that sense of recognition. Now, whatever the reasons are for these disciples, whatever their ulterior motives are, we don't know, but certainly they have the appearance of being disciples. That's why John refers to them as disciples. They have pledged their allegiance in some sense. The thing is, anyone following Jesus with ulterior motives will eventually hit a stumbling block. They will eventually hit a stumbling block. It will happen at some stage. And this is what happens here. We see in verse 60, the people say, in response to all that has just been said, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Literally, the word for hard is a harsh. This is a harsh saying, even a cruel saying in a sense, incredibly strict. That's what they're referring to here. This is a hard saying. 
So their response isn't talking so much about an inability to understand. It is talking about an unwillingness to obey. It's not specifically talking about an inability to understand. Rather, it's talking about an unwillingness to obey what it is that Jesus is teaching. We can see this because of Jesus' response. Notice verse 61. Jesus says, oh, do you take offense at this? The word for offense is, is that, of, that means a stumbling block. The same word that Paul uses when he says the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. So Jesus is saying, do you take offense at this? Notice that he doesn't try and restate what he has said and apologize and say, well, let me just sort of give a more clarity to this. He just says, do you take offense at this? He knows they have understood enough to demonstrate an unwillingness to obey what it is Jesus is teaching. Sure, they don't understand fully, but they understand enough to know that this is something they are unwilling to follow. They hit a stumbling block, which they are unwilling to try and go through. And they hit this stumbling block right after Jesus has given this whole discourse in chapter 6, which gives quite graphic imagery, particularly where they are told that they must eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. And it is this sacrificial imagery that we went over last week, and particularly the need to come to Jesus at the exclusion of everything else that causes a great stumbling block for these followers. For those who have not been brought to life, we will see this clearly. For those who have not been brought to life by the Spirit, the message of Christ is inevitably the aroma of death leading to death. It is a stench and a stumbling block, which is uh, its a small wonder why churches now try and buffer it with all of this superficial language and uh, comfort-driven atmospheres so that people actually miss the stumbling block. The reality is the message of Christ crucified, the message that Jesus is giving, is the aroma of death leading to death for those who have not been born of the Spirit. It is a stumbling block to them. And look here at how Jesus responds. Again, he doesn't offer a more intelligible way of saying that. He doesn't try and restate it. Jesus actually increases the offense in verse 62, where he says, oh, what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? He's saying, well, if you're offended now, wait till you see what's going to happen. Wait till you see the son of man ascending to where he was before. He knows that they have taken offense at what he is saying through their own stubbornness and their refusal to come to him according to his terms. So incredibly, rather than remove the barrier, Jesus reinforces the barrier. He doesn't remove it. He actually reinforces the barrier by giving even more clarity to his purpose in coming to the world, particularly in contrast to their fleshly desires of what they want of him. And this is why he talks about ascending to where he was before. This reminds us of his purpose in coming. The, the ascension reminds us of his purpose in condescending to earth. Jesus did not condescend to earth to establish a political kingdom. That's not what he came for. He didn't condescend to earth simply to give physical nourishment like some people think that he can do after he gives the bread. 
He condescended to earth to deal with this deadly disease of sin that corrupts every single person in the world and to then recreate humanity anew in himself by becoming the atoning sacrifice for sin. That's the purpose of his condescension is to actually deal with this problem of sin. And the ascension, remember condescension coming down, ascension going up, where the risen Christ ascends to the Father's right hand, is precisely what shows us that his offering for sin has been fully accepted and paid for. The ascension shows that that sacrifice for sin that Jesus came to do, to be the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world, to take our sin upon himself, the resurrection is the first half of that. The ascension shows that the father fully approves of that sacrifice and says, my son, come sit at my right hand. The sacrifice has been fully paid for. This was his purpose. And this is the great stumbling block for many people back then and today. The great problem for the Jews of that day was not the oppressive Roman government that needed to be overthrown. That wasn't their biggest problem. The great problem for us is not our physical circumstances or whatever cultural chaos we're in. That's not our biggest problem. The biggest problem for all people at all times is their sin before a holy God. That's the biggest problem for all people at all times, their sin before a holy God. And this is what Jesus has come to deal with. And this is why he must ascend to the Father. He must ascend to the Father to show that that sin offering has been accepted. It's been fully paid for so that we who look to the risen Christ and have him as our mediator seated at the right hand of the Father, we know that the payment for our sin has been fully paid for. We are fully washed by that blood of the risen Christ. So Jesus says to the people here, well, if you're offended at the need to eat and drink of my sacrifice, which I've just been talking about, what's going to happen when you see the Son of Man ascending to the Father? What's going to happen when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What's going to happen when you see that I'm not going to overthrow the Roman rule of the time and provide peace to Israel in a physical sense? Rather, I'm actually going to be crucified and abandoned. And after I've risen from the dead, I will return to sit at my father's right hand to prove that the sin offering has been fully accepted. If you stumbled before, you will stumble at that reality. See, part of the great offense is that what Jesus offers is not desirable to fleshly appetites. That's part of the offense. What Jesus is offering here is not desirable to fleshly appetites. The flesh doesn't want to accept the fact that they have so offended God that that sacrifice must occur. That's not appealing to the flesh. No one wants to comprehend that. No one wants to understand that. The flesh wants physical comfort. The flesh wants to be told, you've done a good job. Sure, you're a bit broken, but that's just a product of your environment. Jesus wants to just put you back together because you're beautiful just the way you are. That's very appealing to the flesh. Not so appealing to say you have offended God. You have done it. You will be held responsible. The only way out for you is to abandon your life of filth and the stain of sin and trust in the life that Jesus has given to you. That's the only way out. That's not appealing to the flesh at all. Eventually, the response of those with fleshly appetites 
will be to stumble at the reality of Christ crucified. That's what will happen. And this is what we see happening for these false followers. So that's the response of the false followers. Now we have sandwiched in between the response of the true followers right at the end. We have the meat of the sandwich, you might say. These three pillars, these three pillars that hold up true followers of Jesus. The first pillar that we see here is the need of the Spirit. This is in verse 63. This is where Jesus says in response to their fleshly uh, desires that then stumble before the reality of Christ, Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus knows that their offense toward him has come because they are simply looking to serve their fleshly appetites. That's why he says here, the flesh is no help at all. You can't profit anything by the flesh. You need to be brought to life to see that the life that I am giving, the only way you can even see that is if you are brought to life. It's just like Psalm 139 says, in your light do we see light. We can't even see light until God's light shines upon us and illuminates us to the light. We can't even see the life that Jesus is giving until he brings us to life. And thus we have a deep need for the Spirit's regenerating work. So Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. Literally there, it it is the Spirit who makes alive. I think that's more forceful. That's the meaning of the word, the spirit who makes alive. That's what must happen. It's the same flow of thought that we saw in John 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born from above, which is a spiritual work. There is a great contrast here happening between flesh and the spirit. And at times, the Bible uses these ideas of flesh and spirit like realms. Think Romans 8, if you're familiar with that. Paul uses this idea of the spirit and the flesh in contrast to each other. And it's like these realms, like we're stuck in this realm of the flesh apart from the grace of God. And we are in Christ brought into this realm of the spirit. So all those apart from a miraculous work of God are dead in this realm of the flesh. They are completely helpless. And a huge theme of the Gospel of John is that Jesus has come into the flesh. Think back in chapter 1. The Word was in the beginning with God and was God. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus comes into the flesh. And then he says, in the flesh, you must eat my flesh. He comes into the flesh and says, you must eat my flesh or you have no life. There is this exchange being presented here. Jesus is offering a way out for those of us who are dead in the flesh by giving us his own flesh, by coming into the flesh and giving us his own flesh as a substitute so that we might then be brought to life by the spirit. So the contrast is you must either consume the flesh of Christ in the sense of being fully devoted to him or you remain in your flesh to be condemned. That is it. The beautiful reality of the gospel is that as Romans 8, 3 says, God sent him in the flesh and in the flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh, that we would be free from the flesh in order to serve in the spirit. That's the contrast that is happening here. The problem for these disciples are that they are in the flesh. Hence why Jesus says the flesh is no help at all. The flesh is this place of corruption, of bondage, of death. 
And the only way out is for you to grab hold of the flesh that Jesus offers, which is his very life. That's the way out. That's the way to live in the spirit. So therefore, this can only happen by the Spirit's work of regeneration where we are brought to life by the Spirit. And the primary means for this is through the Word of Christ. Hence why Jesus says, my words are Spirit and life. So just get this. We have a deep need of the Spirit. The only way out of our death and bondage and corruption is for the Spirit to make us alive. And as we think about how this happens now, We remember the words of Paul in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The word of Christ, because it is living and active, because it is a spiritual work, awakens someone. This is the spirit making someone alive. The word of Christ goes out, someone hears it, and all of a sudden they may have heard it a thousand times before, and this time the spirit is applying that word to their hearts, to that dead heart, and all of a sudden they are brought to life. This is the beautiful mystery of regeneration. The word of Christ goes out. The spirit uses that word to bring that person out of the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit to see the beauty and majesty of Christ to be brought to life. So we see from this our absolute dependence upon the Spirit to do this. And this theme is linked to then the second pillar. Just as we have our need of the Spirit, the second pillar is the gift of the Father. This is verse 64 to 66. The means by which someone is brought to life by the Spirit is by the gift of the Father. Now we saw this very clearly in verse 44. If you remember in chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one comes to me unless the Father draws them. Remember that word is to drag. No one comes to me unless the Father drags them by his powerful hand. This regenerating work is a gift of God. So Jesus again highlights the fact that none of this can happen except by the initiative of the Father. And he says this, looking at our passage, because there has just been a tangible reminder for these people that some people respond differently. And you can imagine people may have questions as to why people are leaving the Messiah. People are about to walk away. There are people who are antagonistic toward him. Then there are people who treasure him. Why is there such a a difference of response? A question could be whether Jesus even knows Why are people leaving him? And Jesus makes it very clear that he knows exactly who would and who wouldn't believe. Verse 64, Jesus says this. He shows his divine knowledge by saying there are some of you who do not believe. And then John, the gospel writer, makes this even clearer by that section in parentheses. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and he knew who would betray him. Jesus knew That's why Jesus says in verse 65, explaining to them again, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Literally, no one can come unless it is given to him. This has to be given like a gift. They can't come. They're stuck in this realm of the flesh, this death and bondage and corruption. The only way they can come is that the Father gives them the Spirit to awaken them to the majesty of Christ to see their salvation. The coming to Jesus is synonymous with believing in Jesus, and that is a gift from the Father. And human nature is to hear this, and I think 
the culture of the church in the 21st century seems to be going a, a bit further down this path is to think, well, that's a bit unfair, uh, unfair rather. That's a bit unfair. It's to have this sort of unwillingness to accept this fact of God's absolute sovereignty over salvation. It uh, seems a bit harsh to us. Perhaps that's part of why the, the disciples here say this is a harsh saying. So we often ask, why doesn't the Father draw all people to himself? Or if we think about the doctrine of election, people's response is to say, well, that does seem unjust. But to ask the question of why doesn't the Father draw all people to himself, or why doesn't he give them the the opportunity, is the wrong question. That's the wrong question. The right question is, why does the Father draw any? Why does the Father draw any? He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to because all have rebelled against him. All left to their own devices would turn away. So the better question is, why did the Father draw us? Why does the Father draw any? Thinking about you and I, and this is a question we should reflect upon a lot. Why would the Father draw us to Christ? We are no better. We are no better off. We have no more to offer. We have so rebelled against him in our hearts. We are enemies and we don't even know the half of our rebellion against him. And yet in his mercy, he would choose to draw wretched sinners like you and me to his son to experience this salvation. Why? Why would he do that? Why be so merciful? Why be so merciful to a people who rebel against him? And that is you and I. And that is the question we ought to reflect upon. Not why wouldn't God save more? Why does God save any? Why? A right understanding of God's sovereign election always leads us to the valley of humiliation. It never leads us to pride. It always leads us to the valley of humiliation because the reality is we have to accept the only thing we are worthy of is hell. That's the only thing we are worthy of. And that valley of humiliation is precisely where God's grace meets us and brings us up to the mountain peak of gratitude. You must go through the valley of humiliation. You must come face to face with your sin before a holy God, with your, uh, the only thing worthy of your life being hell. And that realization is met with the grace of God and the pure mercy and his love being poured out upon you, which brings you to the mountain peak of gratitude. So through the gift of the Father, we see our deep need of the Spirit. And then thirdly and finally, our last pillar is the enduring word of Christ. So this is verses 67 to 71. After many of the disciples walk away, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter gives here an outstanding profession. We all know Peter uh, has other examples where he sticks his foot in it and says some really uh, silly things and Jesus rebukes him because of that. But here is not one of them. This is a wonderful proclamation where Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To those whom the Spirit has brought to life, there is no alternative to the Word of Christ. This is the mark of a true disciple. To those who have been brought to life, there is no alternative. When faced with that prospect of Christ or anything else, the intuitive response is, where would we possibly go? 
That's like trading a tropical paradise for a mud pit, regardless of what it is. Where would we go? The path of endurance, the path of endurance for those who have been born of the Spirit by the Word of Christ, to those who have that response in them, is that they then endure on that path by the living and abiding word of Christ. So that is the thing. The word is what brings us to life because the spirit uses that word. We are awakened to the majesty and glory of Christ. And that implanted word keeps us on the path of endurance where we crave the word of Christ. This is the perseverance of the saints. One of the primary means by which we will be preserved or we will persevere is that those who have been born of God consistently find their nourishment from the Word of God. They consistently find their nourishment. Now, that may look different from person to person, but I find it very against the pattern of Scripture to come across anyone who seems to claim that they find their nourishment in other ways and not the Word of God. Sure, there's other means of nourishment for us, But to exclude the word of God would seem to suggest that that person has not had that word implanted within them and they're not craving the true living and abiding word of God. That is the means God has ordained to keep us on this path of endurance. And Peter, who makes this profession, decades later, he would make this clear in his first letter where he says to Christians scattered throughout uh, the Roman world, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He's saying you've been born again and it hasn't been by anything that's going to perish. It's by an imperishable seed and that imperishable seed is the living and abiding word of God. That's how you've been born. You've been born of something that is living and active within you, not something that somehow brings you to life and then leaves you. Actually, it's living and active within you. The word has been implanted within you like a seed and that seed will then endure. That seed will produce fruit. In simple terms, Peter is saying the word of God, which brought you to life as the spirit illuminated you, to the word who is Christ, that word remains in you like a seed of endurance. So he says, all flesh is like grass and it perishes, but the word of God stands forever. And that word is the gospel that was preached to you. When the gospel was preached, the word was implanted within you like a seed and it produces ongoing fruit. It is living and abiding and it produces fruit that constantly redirects you to Christ. Jesus has the words of eternal life. As we have come to know that, we then have this seed within us that just craves more of the word of God. Sure, it needs to be watered. It needs to be encouraged. It needs to be stirred on by those within the body. But that seed is there. So Jesus has the words of eternal life. As we daily come to God's word, we are brought back to our place of nourishment and endurance as we are pointed to Christ our Saviour. So these are the three pillars sandwiched in between the response of the false followers and the true followers. Our need of the Spirit, the gift of the Father, and the enduring Word of Christ. And notice with all of these pillars, they are things that God very clearly establishes and preserves. 
we have a responsibility to continue to exercise our faith and continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But these pillars are things that God establishes. He gives the spirit. He, he gives the gift and he gives the enduring word that is planted within us. So let's finish by looking at the response of the true followers here. Though masses leave Jesus, and you can see the picture here is that it is by far the majority that leave Jesus. There are 12 who stay. And just quickly, we know that, of course, Judas was not a true follower. So Judas here is within this 12, but as uh, verse 64 and 65 clearly say, Jesus knows who is going to betray him. He says it again in verses 70 to 71. So let's just leave that aside and let's look at the declaration of Peter here as that which is representative of those who are truly following Jesus. What we see from the response of the true followers here is that they have an unshakable allegiance to Christ. This is what Peter represents here, an unshakable allegiance to Christ. Where else would we go? We're not going anywhere. There's no one or nothing else has anything to offer You have our absolute allegiance. Now, we know that this will need to be further refined, particularly in Peter, but in all of the disciples, that allegiance will need to be further refined by their own failures, even as they temporarily leave him. But Jesus knew that was going to happen. That aside, this response of Peter here is a clear fruit of genuine followers. It may remind you of Peter's other declaration in Matthew 16, where he says, you are the Christ, after Jesus asks, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father in heaven did. This is a fruit that something supernatural has happened within you. You have a a seed, you have a heavenly seed within you that is producing this. So this declaration cannot come apart from all of these pillars being there. They have believed him. They have known him as the Holy One of God. And therefore they have Their allegiance is toward him. And as we finish, one of the main things we should see here is the difference between how followers respond when things begin to be stripped away. That's what we see here, how followers respond when things begin to be stripped away. The false followers here are seeing their hopes of a political Messiah able to establish a kingdom that will suit their needs being stripped away. People are seeing their hopes of someone who could provide physical bread being stripped away. They are seeing their self-pleasing life being stripped away as they are told that they must come to him at the exclusion of everything else. Things are being stripped away. And when this happens, followers will reveal where their true allegiance lies. And this is why we as brothers and sisters are called to not despise trials or great difficulties in our lives. That's why we don't despise them, because they are what cement our allegiance. They are what reinforce our allegiance. Peter says this in his first letter again. He says it is often necessary for trials to come. Why? so that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials must come because when they come, they cement our faith and that faith then makes God look glorious.
It makes God look glorious when our faith is so tested and yet not struck down. Difficult seasons come so that we may cement our allegiance to Christ as his enduring word and spirit work within us so that in the end he would be praised because of our commitment to him, even as we are weak jars of clay. That is what makes God look glorious. So the question for us to finish on here, the simple question is where does our allegiance lie? Where does your allegiance lie? This is implicit in the question of Jesus to the disciples where he says, do you want to leave as well? We might ask ourselves that question. Do you want to leave as well? As things are getting stripped away, as your life seems to be falling apart, do you want to leave as well? Are you coming to Jesus as a means to an end or have you come to him as the end? There will be times in the future where culture will demand this question of us. I think it's, it's easy for us to see, though this has always been the case throughout the world, I think culture is certainly moving toward a place where it is actually demanding this question of us because the world demands its allegiance to us. That's part of what cancel culture means. Where you say one thing and you're cancelled, the world wants you to pledge, its, to pledge your allegiance to its measure, to its standard. The world is constantly demanding of us that we su subscribe to its views of sex, gender and tolerance. Or if you do not subscribe to this worldly idea of a watered down version of Christianity, which thinks prioritizing gathering with the saints above everything else is somehow cultish or too serious. If you don't subscribe to that, then you are canceled in that sense, even by Christians, professing Christians. So the world will continue to demand your allegiance. And it feels like we're moving into a place where you will no longer be able to appear as though you're in both camps. I think for a while we've been able to have our feet in each camp. It's been pretty easy for the most part to be a Christian in a place like Australia. It's pretty easy to say you're a Christian. There's not all that much flap you're going to cop, particularly if you can tone down your Christianity by using language like going to church rather than I'm going to serve and worship my Lord Jesus Christ. There's ways that you can certainly tone it down and keep in both camps. But I think we're moving to this point where you will no longer be able to be in both camps. You will no longer able, be able to appear like a cool Christian. You know how there are people, and I certainly was one of them, where you try and use language and make sort of jokes and uh, preachers come up here and give a bit of a comedy routine because it makes them seem more relatable and like they're not too serious as a Christian. And I think that is starting to be stripped away the simple idea of you publicly professing that you serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ will simply be incompatible with a world of people who have already walked away. And we are being called to cement our allegiance. We are being called to pledge our allegiance again, even as we see the masses walking away. And a beautiful passage to help us just reflect and really impress this upon our hearts is the passage of Paul in 2 Timothy 4 from verses 16 and 17, he talks about being deserted by everyone. So he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Everyone deserted him. 
And he said, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. That is the mark of a true follower. Everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He will remain with me. He has assured me of that. So if everyone else walks away, the Lord will stay by my side. That is the pillar of one's true faith, the mark of a true follower, unshakable allegiance to Christ that comes because we have seen our need of the Spirit through the gift of the Father and the enduring Word of Christ. And so all of those pillars within us give us the same response of the disciples when the world demands our allegiance of it. When anyone walks away, where we have that question to us, will you go as well? The response is, where would we go? What a ridiculous question to ask. Where would we possibly go but serve and worship and know the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray before we turn to the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder. We are, we are fearful and humble to admit that we likely will fail like Peter, who had such an assurance of if everyone walked away, he would remain, and yet he deserted Christ. And though we recognize our weakness, we do not look inward, we look outward to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is interceding for us constantly, who will uphold us, and the Spirit who remains within us to preserve us and keep us walking faithfully. So as we now turn to the Lord's table, may we find strength as we turn to the body and blood of Christ. As we take the physical bread and juice, may the heavenly reality of your grace strengthening us be so tangible to us now. So lift our eyes to Christ our Savior as we think about all of these obstacles in our lives, all of these trials which will come and realize that they are merely cementing our allegiance. They are, they are upholding us. For we know you are working them together for good and for your glory. So help us now as we turn to the Lord's table to be very mindful of the gospel of our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.